have that that、uh, relationship, but but it doesn't always fix the whole problem, right? And so I do believe that understanding how mast cell activation syndrome really affects patients really clears all these other issues up in a way. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today we have Dr. Tanya Dempsey. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Now you spoke for us at the International Congress this year on、uh, mast cells. We've done a, a previous podcast with mast cells, but the interest has been phenomenal. In mast cell activation syndrome, I think you've been inundated with requests from Australian patients since you spoke at、uh, our conference. So we thought it'd be good to get you back on and talk about mast cell activation syndrome. So before we do,、yep. just maybe a little bit of your background, because you essentially went from doing conventional medicine and a pretty in a pretty short space, you've now、uh, integrated functional medicine and arguably one of the world leading. Uh, clinicians in mast activation syndrome. So, could you just give us a little bit of a snapshot there? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I I went through the conventional training, went to the top medical school in the United States. You know, did my my residency training also very very conventionally, but top schools, top hospitals. You know, doing what I thought I should be doing. And learning the way I thought I should be learning, and taking care of patients that way as well. And you know, it became very obvious to me after, well, very early on, but certainly after a few years in private practice, that it, I wasn't helping patients the way、uh, I thought they needed to be helped. You know, I I felt that we were really in conventional medicine, traditional medicine, really、uh, treating. Conditions, diagnosing conditions, and putting band-aids on the situation, and we weren't really looking at the root cause and trying to figure out why patients were suffering the way they were suffering. And、uh, I've always been very holistically minded, and so、um, I slowly evolved.、Uh, maybe actually not that slowly, because it became very clear the more I started digging, the more I started looking, the less band-aids I was using, the better patients, the patient outcomes were, and so. Um, I、uh, I took a leap of faith and、uh, left conventional、uh, conventional private practice, which was a, with a very large multi specialty practice, and and decided to go out on my own. And、um, I formed Armonk Integrative Medicine, and that was in 2011. And、uh, and it's been、uh, it's been incredible. What I've learned in that in that period of time is、um, is. Exponential、uh, from where I started, and、um, one of the things that、uh, that I started, you know, noticing more and more is that I was seeing chronically ill patients every day that had they had no answers. They they had seen many many doctors. They were looking for a more、uh, integrative approach, more functionally functional medicine approach, and and I. I was trying to do that, and I was looking at all the different pieces that that I thought I had to look at, and、um, and I still wasn't I wasn't necessarily figuring it out all the time, and and it started to really frustrate me and frustrate the patients, and so I kept kept reading, kept researching, kept talking to people, and、um, and slowly evolved into this understanding of、um, mast cell activation syndrome. In fact, it was probably about four or five years ago. When I diagnosed my first patient, and she is the one who really launched me into into this realm, because this was a patient that that many of your listeners、um, might have seen, or, or if, if your listeners are patients, they they may be in the same boat.、Um, you know, this was a patient who had been、um, sort of a, had had a waxing and waning condition for a number of years. There were times when she was better. There were times that she wasn't. And she was clearly in a in a major flare at the time I was seeing her, and she had just had an upper respiratory infection that wasn't healing. She was very reactive. Everything we tried to treat her with, she was having allergic reactions to. She was having hives. She was having abdominal pain and diarrhea. And there were all these different pieces, different systems that were being affected. And、um, and I couldn't find the one unifying diagnosis that would help explain it all. I knew that they were. It wasn't that she had five different things, diagnoses going on in her body. They had to be connected on some level. 
And we kept digging, kept digging. And I remember that one night when I was doing research online and I was I was looking at PubMed, I was reading everything. I was even honestly Googling too. I was just trying to figure out what I was missing and why she wasn't getting better the way she should have with the treatment that I thought should have worked. And I came across this, this mention of mast cells and mast cell activation syndrome. And it was the light bulb, the light bulb went off. And I said, oh my goodness, this might explain her condition, but wow, this also could explain many of my patients' conditions. And so once you see it, once you, once you find your first patient, it's, it's, um, it doesn't stop. You then realize that this is probably much more prevalent than you ever imagined. And she actually was the, the patient who connected me to one of the other world's experts in mast cell activation syndrome, Dr. Lawrence Afrin. And he and I now work together. He works with me in my in my clinic, and um, and we are uh, very committed to getting to the to the root cause to understand mast cell um, biology, mast cell that mast cell activation syndrome better. Doing research, doing research um, on patients, helping other doctors and educating other doctors to help treat their patients. And so this is a this is like a revolution. I the way I see it, and it has to be. Because there's too many places. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's the the next level of uh, functional medicine where we were looking at things still in the silos. I think like you know leaky gut and methylation, the microbiome. But this could be not in every case, and we'll get to that. Um, maybe a key uh, unifying factor amongst all those symptoms that your your patient was presenting. Absolutely correct, and that's what I was noticing that I was treating the leaky gut and I was treating. The SIBO, and I was treating um, their thyroid and their adrenals, right, and all these things that we think about, right, and and of course we we were taught that they are they are connected, and and if you help the adrenal glands, you're going to help the thyroid too. We know all those things um, have that that uh, relationship, but but it doesn't always fix the whole problem, right? And so I do believe that understanding how mast cell activation syndrome really affects patients really clears all these other issues up in a way, right? And now you've addressed it in a, in, a, in a more, actually in a more holistic way, even if you're using medication, it's still to me holistic because you're looking at that whole picture and how it fits together. Absolutely. So these mast cells sound like a, it's almost a, a pretty bold statement they could be underlying all these issues. So let's, to I suppose, appreciate that, let's have a look at the mast cells. So we'll do a bit of a, a quick 101. So can you give us a uh, understanding of what mast cells are, are, where they're located, what sort of uh, stimulates them and how they respond? Absolutely. So mast cells are, are actually white blood cells. They come from the bone marrow. Uh, they are released and they actually... Um, live primarily in, in tissue, in what we call vascularized tissue. So tissue that has blood vessels that, that feed it. It's one of those white blood cells that's not found in the blood, in the bloodstream. Um, there's a cousin to mast cells that uh, live in the blood and they're called basophils. But mast cells are actually in the, in the tissue and they have a very important job. They actually have several jobs um, and they're, they're very, very involved in the immune system but they can actually affect the immune system on various levels. So the first way that mast cells protect us or help us is that they have, they're sort of our defense mechanism against things that are foreign to it. So if our body is exposed to something that we, we don't like, we don't want to affect us, let's just take um, uh and the influenza virus. We're seeing an uptick in, in the United States right now because of our season in influenza. So let's say you are, are exposed to influenza. The mast cells, in addition to many other cells in the body and, and many other parts of the immune system, will get activated. It doesn't like that the flu. What is it going to do? So it's going to produce, um, it, it already produces um, different chemicals. And they and it and it manufactures these chemicals and stores them in what we call granules, and these granules are sort of ready. They're all ready. So when the mast cell sees something it doesn't like, essentially the mast cell will we call it degranulate. I like to use the the term explode in the sense it op it, it opens up and it releases these chemicals. 
these chemicals are, are toxic. Uh, one of the chemicals that, that many of your listeners you know, have heard of is, is histamine. So the mast cells have, let's say, histamine as one of the chemicals, one of the mediators that it makes. And if it sees something it doesn't like, like the flu, it will explode, release the histamine. And now the histamine's job really is to help kill, essentially, get rid of that influenza virus, except that um, it doesn't often result in that. It, it might try to do that. It probably doesn't really. And and having all that histamine and all those chemicals released actually damages us more than it does the foreign object. But that is really what the mast cell, um, I guess I'll use the term, was designed for. But we know that mast cells do other things too, and they actually interact with other parts of the immune system. They stimulate the part of the immune system that produces antibodies. So that, that also does help you fight things like, like influenza, bacteria, viruses, parasites, all kinds of things like that. Um, and, it, and there are a few other, other ways that, that it works. But the, way we th- the reason we think about the, the first part is because that's where this mast cell activation syndrome really, really comes, up, comes, uh, comes upon us. This is how we um, are starting to understand this mechanism and how it's impacting patients' health. So in a normal mast cell, everybody has normal mast cells um, that are, again, designed to help the immune system. In a patient with mast cell activation syndrome, the mast cell has gone awry. There's an inappropriate response. So the mast cell may not be actually responding to a virus or bacteria or or even an allergen in the air like pollen. It is now reacting um, in totally inappropriately and almost without any any reason. Okay, there's there there may have been a trigger initially. There may have been something that may have started this process going, but sometimes we don't always find the trigger. But we know that the mast cells will continue this sort of explosion, degranulation of these chemicals, including histamine, and and that is damaging tissue. So the patients are reacting. You know, they could have um, their upper respiratory tract affected. It could be like a runny nose. It could be trouble breathing. It could be asthma. It could be as bad as anaphylaxis even. Um, but the but the but the mast cell and its and its mediators that it releases can affect just about every single part of the body. Almost every organ can be affected. Um, and the symptoms will be different depending on where this is happening. So, um, so this is sort of the basis of what we're, what we're talking about in terms of mast cell activation syndrome. I think that, um, I think it's important to note a few, a few additional things. Mast cells are the cell that's responsible for allergy in patients who have allergy. Um, that's not mast cell activation syndrome. That's allergy. Um, patients with mast cell activation syndrome could have an allergy to something. They can certainly be allergic. Oftentimes, they have allergic-like symptoms without it being a true allergy. They're at, they're, their mast cell is acting as if it were allergic and, again, releasing those chemicals. I think it's important to note that, that there are over 200 different chemicals that the mast cell can contain and can make, but not all those 200 chemicals are in every every mast cell. So each one is different, and each one is different depending on the location in the body. That's yeah, fascinating and really illustrates that uh, it's not like a homogenous clinical picture, I bet, because if different mast cells or whether constituents come, uh, are in different organs and tissues, and now we've got different triggers, it sounds pretty tough to um, diagnose or identify the, the clinical picture. So if you could, what, what are some of the, the patterns you're seeing with your mast cell activation syndrome patients? So, you know, I, I like to divide um, mast cell activation syndrome into three categories, because I think if you understand it, uh, understand how there, even within the syndrome itself, there is some, there's some differences, um, you, then you can understand how to identify the patient. So there's primary mast cell activation syndrome, and these are patients who typically present fairly young in age. There are 
um, there are signs, let's say, they may not have the full presentation, but there are signs that they may have mast cells that are, that are inappropriate. And, but over time, and as they get older, it becomes more and more apparent and they become more and more reactive until there's a, there's a specific, like I would call it a straw that broke the camel's back sort of thing. There's a trigger of some kind, but maybe it's not identifiable. And then they wind up with, you know, with this full-blown syndrome and need a lot of help and care to, to get it under control. So that's primary. In secondary mast cell activation syndrome, these are patients who may have had a genetic predisposition. So there, there may have been something there, but not always. And there was a specific trigger that brought it on. And so the mast cells are actually reacting inappropriately, uh, but they're reacting because something really did start it, like an infection, a traumatic event, a stressor in, the li- in your life, um, an exposure to a toxin. There is something, and we should go over some of the triggers because I think it's important to, to note. But in secondary, the, the thought is that if you can eliminate the exposure to the trigger, um, that it might be, you know, it could be that it could be cured or, or very well controlled. And then there's this third category, which, you know, I'll call idiopathic. It's sort of, it could be a combination of primary and secondary. And I, and I, I would say that, that many patients have, have both. Or it could be that we just don't, we don't know. We don't know if it's primary or secondary because we haven't figured it out yet. So when we're trying to figure, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, no. So I'm just—I was just to recap that with the primary. Then it's probably uh, pertinent that we take a good um, case history and, and timeline. And then if it's secondary, or regardless of if it's primary or secondary, the other thing we really want to do is screen for for triggers. Exactly. And so the history when you when you're trying to you know when the patient comes in and regardless of whether they're coming in because they want to know if they have mast cell activation syndrome or if they come in because they haven't been well, you know, for whatever reason, we start at the very beginning. And the very beginning for me is actually um, reviewing the mother of the patient and what happened before conception of the patient, what happened through pregnancy when the patient was in utero, and then, and then the birth, and then going through all the way through. Because the mother could have been exposed to something while the patient was in utero and set up the immune system in a way that that then manifested later as as this inappropriate mast cell response um, and altered immune system. So the history is so critical and starting all the way at the beginning. And then while we're taking the history, we are looking at and, and asking questions about triggers. So if the patient says, well, at the age of 10, I had an outbreak of, of hives. Okay. So, you know, the question, do you know why? No, they never figured it out. Okay. Well then let's, let's see, let's see if we could jog the memory. Is it possible you had a, a cold before it started? Is it possible you had uh, some, some um, diarrhea illness, some gastroenteritis? Is it possible that um, it was allergy season and you did have seasonal allergies, right? So we, we look through all that. So I'm looking at the environmental antigens. So those come from the air, they come from food, they come from, from animals, all those things that are sort of airborne, we need to, we need to understand if there's a link. Um, I always ask about pathogens um, like viruses so, so a lot of patients don't know. They don't necessarily know what they've been exposed to, but but sometimes it is a little more obvious. So you have to think about viruses. You have to think about bacteria, fungus, and mold, and and parasites. So those are like sort of the internal things that, that can trigger those mast cells. In addition, toxins of all kinds have to be thought about, have to be asked about. So you, you know, we, there are microbial toxins. You can't always ask about that, but you can certainly look and test for it. Heavy metal exposure. You know, I have patients who tell me they didn't even think it was important, but they, they grew up next to um, uh, an iron mine. Uh, they worked on, the, on a railroad. They, um, there are all these things, there are all these ways they can get heavy metal exposures that they may have not realized could have impacted their health even many years later. Pesticides, 
It's a huge problem. And, and even more importantly, I think this glyphosate issue, Roundup, um, and uh, that, that's you know, gotten a lot of publicity in the United States here. And there's no question that those toxins can have an effect on not just the mast cell, but also the endocrine system, uh, other parts of the immune system, the nervous system, um, et cetera. So, um, so we need to ask about those. And, and even BPA, um, which is a plastic uh, type of plastic that um, we know is an endocrine disruptor, all these things have been um, linked to the development of mast cell activation syndrome and, again, other immune dysregulators. Stress can be a very, very important trigger. Um, and I always ask about uh, the things like any kind of a trauma, abuse, um, and, and stressors in family, stressors um, outside the family, work, all those things, very important. Um, because with enough stress, you can you can throw things uh, out of whack for sure. Um, hormones are potent tri uh, triggers, and we, we should talk about hormones, uh, and, and so that we can understand the interaction between hormones and these mast cells. Um, but in women, it's not uncommon for mast cell activation syndrome to get worse during the period, or two weeks before the period during ovulation. So we know that there are the interactions, the microbiota is another very important piece of this. And there, there are studies that have been published and um, letters that have been published specifically about um, the microbiota and the impact of those good bacteria uh, on, on the immune system and even specifically the mast cell. And then, and then diet, of course, in our, in our functional medicine training, uh, we know that diet is, is critical uh, on so many levels in, in, in understanding what's going on with the patient. So these are all things that I'm, I'm going to focus on in my, in my history taking, and I'm also going to um, look at these things as much as I can through testing. Brilliant. And so that really, there might be some light bulbs going up for, for listeners about how you've just identified like some of the well-known functional medicine drivers like mold and parasites and infection. But the, the takeaway I get from that is, there's a there's a piece of physiology that we probably didn't understand until now that um, they may have been doing a detox or antimicrobials or helping with the microbiome, but if the mast cells are still uh, firing excessively, then that may still drive the, a lot of the symptoms, and hence why uh, um, practitioners are employing their you know, you know typical rem uh, therapies, but maybe not getting the the results thereafter. Would that be a fair assumption or assessment of how mast cells fit into the the context of the, this functional medicine um, format? Yes, absolutely. I think you, you hit, the, hit the nail on the head there. The truth is that, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I treat a lot of Lyme disease um, in my practice, and it's become very clear that many Lyme patients, Lyme and other tick-borne diseases, so I'm not just talking about Borrelia, Burgdorferi, I'm talking about all Bartonella, Babesia, all these things, some of which are found in, in Australia. And um, they, get, they get the infection. Um, the infection can be persistent. So there's no question that these infections can live for a very long time, maybe forever in the body. You're treating it, but many of these patients um, develop mast cell activation syndrome, either during the in, initial infection or even during the treatment. Very often they're being treated and all of a sudden they start reacting to everything you give them. And, you know, the the teaching has been, well, that could be Herxing or a Herxheimer reaction or a die-off reaction. That's why they're reacting. They're reacting to the herb or the antibiotic. And that's a good thing because they are, um, they must be killing something, right? And I see it differently. I'm starting to see that these reactions are very much related to the mast cell, that pushing them through it is not necessarily going to accomplish anything other than damaging their mast cells and their body even more. And so it's, if you understand what those reactions really are and you start to, to manage them differently, then the patient responds better um, and, they feel, and they feel better. So it has really changed the way I treat my Lyme patients now because I see it as this is, a, this is an extension. I can't just treat Lyme disease. I have to treat the mast cell activation syndrome piece of it in order for me to successfully treat the Lyme disease, and vice versa. Because if I don't treat the Lyme disease, 
I might be, we may be stuck with the mast cells acting that way, but, but the truth of the matter is, even with treating the Lyme disease, there is, there is the risk that the, once the mast cells have been activated the way they have, they may never go back to what they were before. So these are things that, that from a functional medicine perspective, we have to be looking at um, because, you know, at least in my patient population, they're very sensitive. They, they, again, they react to a lot of things and they get frustrated because they think they're never going to get better because they can't take, for instance, the herbs or the antibiotics that everyone else has tried to prescribe to them for this disease, right? As soon as you start managing them differently, you start moving their progress along. So let's, uh, yeah, that's brilliant. So let's uh, use that sort of uh, mindset for female hormones because that's what I wanted to get to. Um, and it's a good example, historically in natural medicine, it's all, there's been a, a big focus on the ovarian output of like progesterone and estrogen and trying to create this magic balance and then, uh, you know, looking at the, the metabolites of estrogen for all these hormonal conditions. But I'm sure many practitioners have found that that only takes you so far. And I, we had a podcast with uh, Lara Bryden speaking about this with endometriosis. We have to think more, more broadly and globally. Mm-hmm. Um, you've really looked at uh, mast cells in, in female hormonal conditions, and that could be a key piece there. So can you explain what you've discovered so far? Yeah, it's really um, mind-blowing in many ways. And once I started really understanding this piece um, better, it really does offer you so many other options for, for treating patients. So, you know, if I had a patient uh, in the past who came to me with uh, symptoms of PMS, for instance, uh, and let's say painful periods and, and maybe heavy, okay, and, you know, we would approach it, we would do some sal- salivary you know, uh, hormone testing, uh, different parts of the month, we would start to try to, to figure out, you know, where, um, where the inflammation is, we'd, we'd want to know, you know, the estrogen levels at particular times, the progesterone levels, just as you said, right. And, you know, we might opt to put somebody on a, on a oral contraception, uh, contraceptive, right. Um, and, and that's not necessarily wrong. Uh, that could, that can help, um, for, for, um, women who are in the age, let's say they, they can't take those things. We're always talking about, okay, so, you can use bioidentical hormones, you can give them more progesterone, right? There are all these tricks that we've learned through all these conferences that we go to. But, but now that I understand even better that um, what's really going on is, is the hormones are actually impacting a big piece of the immune system. Once you kind of deal with that immune system piece and you deal with the mast cells um, and you figure out how to manage the hormones in that, in that way, in that condition, then you again, you are gonna help patients in a way that you you couldn't imagine before. So if I have a patient, for instance, and I'll and I'll go back over the the um, the biology a little bit, but um, if I have a patient, for instance, now who has let's say painful heavy periods, and they or have tried the birth control pill, and let's say somebody put them on that, it didn't really help them enough. They were still having a lot of pain. And they tried, um, they tried, let's say, bioidentical progesterone, and they tried different things, and yeah, nothing's really working. And I find that they have elevated mediators um, for, for mast cell activation. So we're looking at things like histamine. Um, we're looking at chromogranin A, tryptase levels. We're looking at urinary metabolites from mast cells. And so let's say I've identified that they have these mediators and they have the clinical picture. If I try something as simple as giving them an antihistamine during uh, or right before their period, and even so much as giving them an antihistamine that they may even insert intravaginally during the period or before the period, all of a sudden, it it changes everything. And so I had a patient who had really had polycystic ovarian syndrome, which I, I would like to cover a little bit because there is a very interesting link between PCOS and, and mast cells. She had the syndrome. She had crazy irregular periods that, that could, she could skip months. And then when she got it, also very, very heavy. And we did the simplest thing. I put her on uh, loratadine and famotidine, um, which are H1 and H2 blockers. And, and I had her do it every day for, for a month or two. 
just to see if anything would happen. And at her first cycle on those two, her period, she got her period and she, and it was almost uneventful. The, the, the bleeding was significantly less. There was no pain. And it was, it was uh, life-changing for her. I mean, to take two simple things and, uh, and to prevent, you know, her, her periods really, you know, those, those symptoms was really remarkable. So um, that's why I think this is very important. So the thing about mast cells, so let me back up. Mast cells are, um, they have on their surface many different receptors. These receptors are, are helping the mast cell interact with the world. So there are receptors there that will uh, trigger, let's say, an allergic reaction. Those are IgE receptors, but there are lots of other receptors. And it just so happens that there are estrogen receptors sitting right on the mast cell. So during the time in the cycle, when the estrogen levels start to rise, and particularly at the time when they're at their highest, and then all of a sudden the estrogen falls. So first the mast cells are seeing the estrogen. The estrogen is binding the receptors, sending some sort of signal to the mast cell. It could be for some patients that as those receptors get saturated and fill up with all the estrogen, that's when the mast cells understand that they have to degranulate. There's something wrong. They have to, they have to release their, their histamine and other, other chemicals. Um, but it may be for some women that everything's fine as long as there's enough estrogen, but then the estrogen drops, the progesterone drops, and boom, they're, they're, um, they're, they're about to get their period, but at the same time, their mast cells are now very, very reactive. And mast cells release chemicals including not just histamine, but his, um, heparin is a very important uh, compound that mast cells manufacture and release. Heparin is a blood thinner. So if you have these mast cells and they're exploding, and they're exploding in the uterus, by the way, because there are, they are in abundance in the uterus um, for a lot of reasons we think, um, you can get excessive bleeding because the mast cells have released this blood thinner into the, into the environment there and, and, and many other chemicals as well. And so if you can stabilize the mast cell and block it from exploding, then you get, you know, potentially less bleeding and you get you know, less pain and, and less irregularity. So, so controlling it in that way can be, can be very, very helpful. Sometimes that's not going to be enough. Sometimes you do have to use some kind of hormones, some hormones to stabilize that mast cell. Maybe the mast cell needs to see some progesterone and some estrogen in a certain ratio, and that keeps things happy. And if it's not, then that's where you run into, into trouble. But that's an art. That's not, we don't know yet what the right amount for everybody is. That's the problem. So that's a great synopsis on uh, yeah, bleeding, heavy bleeding. You just touched upon pain there. I want to uh, dive into endometriosis because I believe there's a fair bit of research there on uh, mast cells and, and the pain endometriosis. Yep. There are uh, many different syndromes and diseases that have been linked to mast cell activation syndrome. Um, and endometriosis is, is one for sure. Um, and there are you know, there are others. And in fact, um, I have, I have a slide, unfortunately, I can't, I can't show it to you, but I have this amazing slide that, um, that Dr. Afrin, um, actually, it's a, it's a, it's a image from one of his articles. And it was an article on mast cell mediated mechanism of nociception. So this is pain syndromes, and how mast cells are affecting them. And on this great illustration, he has Listed endometriosis, chronic prostatitis, migraines, um, vulvodynia, irritable bowel syndrome, neuropathic pain, post-op pain, fibromyalgia, and bladder pain syndrome. So if you think about all those things, right, these are conditions, they're inflammatory conditions. Some of them we, we know are autoimmune in nature. Some of them are not. Some of them are hereditary. Um, some of them are a little more obvious, but if you think about it that way, endometriosis makes sense. Why it makes sense is because the endometrium, the, the uterus, is filled with mast cells. And, and we believe that during pregnancy, there's, a, there's an increased number of mast cells. So they must serve some purpose um, that we don't 
quite understand yet. Um, and in endometriosis, if you think about the mast cells, are there's, they're in abundance, but they've now been activated in a patient who has that that uh, ability to to develop mast cell activation syndrome. Um, and now you have an explosion of of the mast cells. You have pain, but more importantly, mast cells are involved in the development of um, well, I should say, in growth and development. Period. They they are responsible because of many of the mediators that they make in either promoting normal growth or abnormal growth. So if you have mast cells, they're releasing certain certain mediators that are causing the growth of abnormal uterine cells in places that they shouldn't be growing. And then you have endometriosis. So it's a it's a very interesting connection, uh, and again, it offers some hope in terms of treatment, whereas many women in the past might might have to go through surgery. Um, they may have, definitely it would have to be on some kind of hormone suppression to stop the growth, right? But now we have a way of treating mast cells that could potentially help them without doing those two things. So it's pretty long. Great. And so now... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it gives a lot of hope to a lot of uh, practitioners and patients alike. And now the other one you've mentioned, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So again, like functional medicine, one of the, the key views of this is like a metabolic disorder and patients are often overweight and obese and have insulin resistance and uh, there's a heavy uh, focus, and understandably, on like a low-carbohydrate diet and exercise, lifestyle intervention to help with the metabolic control. But, you know, the data is quite clear that not all patients and maybe only two-thirds or 50% are overweight or have insulin resistance. So there's the, if you want to quote unquote, the skinny um, PCOS type. So uh, maybe mast cells could play a role as a more of a unifier, perhaps I'm wondering. Um, what's your understanding of mast cells with polycystic ovarian syndrome? So um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's actually really um great example of how um, research needs to continue to to evolve um, because, yeah, I've actually been very interested in polycystic ovarian syndrome since I started practicing and, um, and you know, was always focused on the, um, the insulin-resistant piece of it. I mean, even back then, people weren't concentrating on the metabolic piece. They were really concentrating on the, just the hormone piece. It was a hormonal imbalance and that was it, right? And they, you know, they treated it with hormones, you know, birth control pills and things like that. Um, I became very, very aware that there's an insulin resistance that was, that was occurring. And even in, in thin women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, right? So, so we're there, then, then where do we go from, from there? So what we started seeing, what I started seeing, and then it became apparent in the literature is that many of my polycystic ovarian syndrome patients would develop some sort of autoimmune disease, so it wasn't uncommon after years of PCOS that these women would get Hashimoto's or just simply hypothyroidism. Um, and, uh, and, and some of them had, many of them had things like asthma and allergies, and, um, and, and some of them had endometriosis. And then you start seeing all these other connections, right? So they could have um, eating disorders, very, very common. So psychiatric disorders also could be seen very, very often, irritable bowel syndrome, um, gastroparesis, um, and, and so on and on, right? So that can't all be just a metabolic issue. That has to be more. There has to be, the immune system has to be involved on some level. And so what we now understand is that PCOS is an autoimmune condition. Um, it, is, um, there, it is an inflammatory condition. There's low-grade inflammation throughout. Um, and, and we know that there are many inflammatory cytokines that uh, promote the inflammation. Many of them are produced in the mast cell, um, which is, you know, which is really interesting. Um, and so we now see there's some really interesting um, literature. And, and excuse me if I say, you know, that these, a lot of the literature, a lot of the studies are done in, in mice or rats, and not that many yet in humans, but I still think it's, it's interesting. When they've exposed these rats to different cytokines, if they've, explo ex um, they've exposed them to different diets, they've exposed them to different um, environments, they do, they can trigger um, 
a, a polycystic ovarian syndrome like picture. Um, and, and they often find mast cells in the, in that, in that link. Right. So I think it's, uh, I think it's important, but we need, we need obviously more information in the meantime. Um, I think that with the information we have and the, the fact that we know that those mast cells have estrogen and progesterone receptors and they react to fluctuations in hormones. And we know that women with polycystic ovarian syndrome often have very high levels of estrogen. They have high levels of testosterone as well. Interestingly, mast cells do have testosterone receptors, but it's not clear that those receptors actually cause any type of reaction. So it looks different than the estrogen. But PCOS women, we often consider them estrogen dominant. So again, they have really high estrogen levels. Many of them, if they are overweight or obese, they have an increased amount of fat and fat cells. We know that estrogens collect in the, in the fat. We know environmental estrogens like xenoestrogens are, are acquired and, and stored in the fat. And that also can, can contribute. And we know xenoestrogens bind to mast cells and induce degranulation. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle. Um, and that inflammation can lead to more insulin resistance and more inflammation. And again, it just goes on and on. Um, the other thing that I want to mention that I, that I failed to mention was that one of the common things that we see in PCOS is, is migraines. Um, and we see it in many other, women, uh, other patients too, of course. But um, there is a, a migraine connection uh, to hormones and, and the mast cells specifically. And again, you know, we, we focus on stabilizing the mast cell or blocking the release of these mediators or blocking the effects of these mediators at the tissue level, um, then all these other problems could potentially be, be uh, ameliorated. Great. Uh, so, yeah, it really offers um, some hope to PCOS sufferers and other hormonal conditions. Uh, ideally, more work will hopefully come out in the future that helps uh, reinforce this or gives us more clarity, but certainly gives us enough to work with with our patients. Um, I might use that uh, migraine as a bit of a segue to go up to the brain. Um, one of the final areas I just want to touch upon is uh, neuropsychiatric conditions. Uh, that seems to be quite prevalent with muscle activation syndrome. And again, it's one of those areas where in natural medicine or functional medicine, we've had quite good success with treating things like anxiety, depression, and even uh, cognitive disorders. But um, it seems like mast cells could be playing a role there and offering another avenue for intervention. Um, what's your uh, take on mast cells and mood and cognitive decline? It's, it's a very, uh, very important um, piece of, of the puzzle. And, and I think that uh, for the psychiatrists who are, who are more functionally medicine trained, I think it's Hopefully, they're going to become more aware, and then I hope that it passes down into the more traditional um, practitioners. Because um, what we need to understand about the mast cells. So let me let me back up a little bit. Um, mast cells, as I mentioned earlier on, are found in all all tissue, basically vascularized tissue. And you know they're there. They're in these different tissues because they are trying to protect from the environment, right? So some things are obvious, like if you have mast cells in your uh, respiratory tract, they're trying to protect you from what you're breathing in, right? And and so if you breathe in something they don't like, that's where the symptoms are going to come out because that's where they're essentially degranulating. They're in the skin because that's in contact with the environment. Um, they're in the genitourinary um, space because that also does have some interaction with the environment. It's in the GI tract, you know, because we're eating food from the environment. Uh, and so we're protecting, you know, from pathogens, you know, Specifically, for if we're eating something that's that's bad, right? Are, so it's an interesting design, right? It's it's there for a purpose. So it turns out that mast cells are also found in the nervous system, and specifically, they line the nerves in a way. They basically are um, just going down the length of the nerve, and they're there and and ready and waiting for action. Now, the theory is that so some people believe that the environment is not really in contact with the nervous system, right? We talk about the blood-brain barrier, for instance, right? 
things are not that easily going into the nervous system. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the theory is that maybe there isn't really a tight blood-brain barrier, and maybe the nervous system does have uh, more interaction with the environment, and so that's why the mast cells are there. And if there's anything that is bothering the mast cells, or even if it's not in the mast cells have just been, you know, they've been activated, they're going to release these, again, inflammatory mediators. Some of them are cytokines. Some of them are neurotransmitters even. And they're sending a signal to the nerve that the nerve needs to send a, a specific signal. And that signal could be aberrant. It could be not correct. And uh, it doesn't matter. Um, then the mass, the, the nerves themselves release their um, their neurotransmitters, um, and those could potentially even um, feed back to the mast cell and send a signal to the mast cell to do something also probably inappropriate. So, um, so there's no question that mast cells are are affecting the nervous system. Okay, and then and the nervous system on many levels. Now, if you take it a step further, so we know that I mentioned earlier that mast cells are involved in pain syndromes. And those pain syndromes originate in the, at the nervous system level, right? So if we look at the brain, for instance, right, there has to be mast cells there as well, and there are. And if the mast cells have been activated, and there are, again, many reasons why they could be activated, they can send that signal and cause anxiety, depression, OCD, and even in one of the areas of interest of mine that, that I'm, um, I've been researching and I'm, I'm actually going to be speaking on next week at a conference is the interaction between mast cells and autoimmune encephalitis or autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders. And, and these are the disorders that are, are triggered by an autoimmune phenomena. There's an attack on the nervous system that causes these abnormal mood disorders or, or abnormal even behavior. So there can be tics involved. There can be even seizures. Um, and again, OCD, anxiety, depression, uh, all kinds of behavioral disorders. In the, in, the children, um, in the pediatric population, we call it PANDAS or PANS. And in the adult population, we call it autoimmune encephalitis, encephalopathy, autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder. And what we're seeing is that um, there is some trigger, uh, but the mast cells then are are affecting the, the nervous system and are probably promoting an autoimmune phenomena that's not specifically autoimmune, but is acting as if it's autoimmune. And so now the nerves are being attacked, specific receptors are being attacked. They could be dopamine receptors. They can be um, tubulin receptors. There are various different receptors that we're looking at, NMDA receptor. Um, now those those receptors are being bound or they're being stimulated in a way that's inappropriate and causing this this abnormal abnormal behavior. So I have one of my interests is in the link not just between this condition and mast cells, but specifically in a particular tick-borne infection called Bartonella. And it turns out that Bartonella is a very potent contributor to this condition. And treating that bacteria can have, uh, treating the bacteria and treating the mast cells together can have a profound effect on that condition, which right now, just so you know, we have, we don't have a lot of treatment options for patients who have this autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder. We have things like, at the, at the one extreme, plasmapheresis and IVIG, intravenous gamma globulin. We have um, antibiotics. There are a few other therapies that are being looked at, um, but now we have the use of mast cell stabilizers, antihistamines, other blockers of other mediators, and now you have one more layer that you can you can approach this with, and and see you know dramatic dramatic improvement. Well, wow, that's uh, amazing what potential that addressing the mast cells can um, have in in neuropsychiatric conditions. All right, well, I'm about to wrap it up. So, yeah, I think you've hinged upon like autoimmunity. I'd love to dive into that, but, yeah, we've only really scratched the surface. Um, so listeners might have questions about testing and treatment. 
Uh, I will remind the listeners that we did cover that with uh, Dr. Sandeep Gupta. So if they want to um, refer back to that. But, um, so before we close off, any other sort of closing remarks about um, you know advice for, for uh, natural medicine practitioners on, on mast cell activation syndrome? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, think about it. Have that on your differential. When you have a patient with multiple diseases, diagnoses that don't completely explain everything about the patient's condition. So I think just thinking about it and having it there. Um, I think that, you know, reading as much as you can, um, listening to these podcasts, reaching out to um, Dr. Afrin or myself. If you have questions, we're always happy to, to help practitioners. You know, our goal is to educate as many as many practitioners as possible, because the, the truth of the matter is that I can't treat every patient um, and neither can Dr. Afrin. And so we we want to help others help their patients, because I think that's critical, because we're all seeing this. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say it's an epidemic. I don't want to get to that extreme. But I, I do think that there's this is a, not an uh, unprevalent condition, you know, probably with estimates of somewhere around 17 percent, maybe maybe 20 percent of the population have mast cell activation syndrome. And that's a big number. So, um, you know, I think that that's uh, that's maybe the take home message that uh, to, to keep thinking about it and um, and understanding that that the patients there is hope for the patients, you know, as long as you you follow this path, you know. So I thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this time. And uh, I hope everyone learned something today. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure they have. And it's really uh, food for thought. And I think hopefully for some, there's some real light bulb moments where they've had um, stubborn conditions in their clinic that this may be a potential uh, avenue for them. So I was reluctant to um, to maybe broadcast your contact details because I know how busy you are, but that just shows how uh, altruistic you are in, in helping practitioners and, and patients alike to really get to the bottom of their um, health complaints. So um, we can put some links to your uh, contact details in, in the show notes. So Dr. Dempsey, I really sure. uh, thank you. And um, yeah, I'm just repeating what a lot of our, almost all of our um, audience felt at Congress that, yeah, it was a great, it was a privilege to have you down in Australia to speak. And hopefully we can connect again in the future to, um, you know, further broadcast the, the word about Marcel's and and improving patients' health. Happy to, to be involved in in any way that I can. I really love I love the audience there. Great. Well, thank you, and um, take care, and we hope to connect soon. Yes, thank you so much, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases keep up to date with key industry updates and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.